Hi, I'm Louise. And I'm John. And you're listening to the DCIF podcast, Changing World, New Opportunities, an investment podcast designed for members of the DC community. We'll be chatting with asset managers who are all passionate about DC and getting investment right for the members. Investments in DC have changed a lot, so we'll be helping you, the listener, to stay up to date with the latest, from real estate to alternatives, the challenges of trusteeship through to addressing climate change. This first series will focus on the changing world we find ourselves in and the exciting investment opportunities for DC plans. Keep up to date with our work at dcif.co.uk, where you can sign up to receive our research and get invitations to our launches. You can also follow us on Twitter at DCIF underscore UK and on LinkedIn, where we are the Defined Contribution Investment Forum. Fantastic. Let's get on with the show. Good morning. Uh, what have you been up to so far today then, John? It's a bright and sunny morning here in Devon. Sadly, it's not as bright and sunny up here in Edinburgh. It's very overcast and, and very chilly. But you know, my morning has been pretty mundane, whereas it looks like you've been out for a run, doing something yeah. active. Yeah. Correct. Correct. I dragged myself up the hill, which usually is at a walking pace. And then I ran down the hill, which went well for me. I'm not sure it's going to get me very fit, though. But that's a question for another day. At least I got out and Small did steps. Run. Yeah, it. Small exactly. steps. Yeah, exactly baby steps and I'm trying to like what's it called like habit layer where you listen to an educational podcast while you're out running oh. for like double smugness good. So yeah shout out to Darren and Nico and their VFM podcast been listening to a bit of that I think you have as well I have indeed yeah admittedly I don't do it when I'm out running um I no. tend to listen to sort of cheesy 80s music on the treadmill yeah um, da, da, da. exactly totally. yeah you can do it I have the tiger type thing yeah <laughs> oh so who who are we talking to today so we had a really good chat with Robbie at CBRE Investment Managers to kind of look at things from a sustainability perspective. And I suppose his role encompasses real assets, but most of our the questions we ask are more in relation to sort of UK direct property, which is where a lot of DC schemes typically tend to have their real estate exposure. But I found it a really fascinating conversation um, and you could tell he was very passionate about it. And like many of our podcasts, I think we could have probably taken a lot longer than we, than we actually did in the end. So maybe he's someone we look to bring back in series two. Yeah, definitely. I think the bit that really stood out for me is when we asked him to talk about the sort of relationship between real assets and the kind of net zero climate journey. And he talked about how we're in a sort of sustainability revolution akin to the industrial revolution and how every single aspect of property at the moment is is sort of being reevaluated and, and, and redefined. And I think that's, you know, you can see that everywhere, can't you, around you. I can see it on my little yeah. high street here in South Devon. And you can see it in London too, you know, all these properties like changing purpose. There's a yeah. there's a really big building just down the road from me. I mean, who knows what that was before? Probably just like a mm-hmm. giant chippy or a pub or something. I don't know. <laughs> it's been a building. Oh, giant like, chippy. Like yeah, that, I know. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, um, yeah, life, life down here, fish and ships, very important part of it. Um, but yeah, I think, I mean, yeah, it's been a building site for like three years, but I think they're turning it into um co-working space down here, which is right, so cool. I know. So anyway, Robbie talks a bit about um, that kind of redefinition of property, which I thought was really fascinating and and kind of linked it really beautifully back to um, net zero. So, yeah, it was a really fascinating conversation uh, and looking forward to um, sharing it with you all, really. Um, And John, we should also say um, this is the last episode of season one. We might possibly do a little wrap up episode after this, but sadly... This is the end of yeah. our lovely little um, period as co-hosts, which I'm really sad about. So we're going to miss yeah. you. 
Yeah, I've been been told I need to move upstairs. I think in the kind of football parlance. <laughs> no, no, I really enjoyed it. And um, listeners who've listened to all the episodes will probably realise that in the first couple, uh, we might have been a little bit rusty when it comes to the podcast. But hopefully, by the time you know we get to um, you know listening to this one, it's very polished and we sound like seasoned professionals when it comes to the podcast and thing. But yeah. as you say, we'll probably do a wrap up podcast to think about the various sessions we've had. But it's been fascinating listening to you know our members talk about areas that they are passionate about themselves. So I've definitely learned a lot in working asset management. You, you think you have a reasonable handle on lots of different bits of the asset management world, but definitely learned a lot. And you know, yeah. particularly in, in the, the session we're doing today with Robbie, um, le- learned a lot in the built environment and how important the built environment actually is because he gave examples of you know whether it's the houses houses we live in or the offices we work in how important buildings are to the way we live and indeed work so it was a fascinating session so yes I will be sad to hang up my headphones and hang up the microphone but you know it's been a lovely experience I really enjoyed working with you on these podcasts yeah me too and I know we're going to miss you onwards and um, yeah I guess you'll be, I don't know, maybe, maybe, you never know, John, you might end up doing a podcast at Aberdeen. I'm sure this won't be the last we hear from you. Can't imagine. Well, you never know. Um, I've, you never I've, know. I keep mentioning it to the marketing people. That I've, I'm an experienced <laughs> podcast presenter, but no one's <laughs> tapped me on the shoulder to say, John, we need your um, your dulcet tones. As well, you should say that, you know, whilst I'm being, <laughs> you know, someone else would take in, would join you on the podcast, that the, the yes. Scottish tones won't be lost because yes. it will be Lorna um, who will be sort of taking up the reins alongside you. So the, the Scottish yes. tones will still be there. Yes, Lorna Kennedy, who is our chair this year of the DCIF. And we've we've kind of decided it's got to be the chair who does it every year. So Lorna's going to sta- um, step in. Um, the, the microphone will be passed across Edinburgh. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Have to uh, you know arrange the handing over of the baton uh, yeah. maybe in St Andrew's Square or somewhere like that but the microphone will be passed across momentous yeah some <laughs> sort of ceremony okay yeah. well um on that note thank you John and we'll um, we'll hand over to our conversation with Robbie hi Robbie thanks so much for joining us today for this podcast it's great to have you thank you I thought we might just start off by asking you to tell us a bit about yourself because it sounds as though from our pre-chat to this like you had a slightly different way of getting into this current job that you're in. I was really intrigued to hear a bit more about that. Thank you for having me on the show. I guess I do come from a slightly different route from many of the others in the sector. So I trained as a chemical process engineer and obviously I found out or landed as the EMEA head of sustainability at CBR Investment Management. So I funnily enough went straight into greenhouse gas accounting when I started my role. So straight out of university back in 2008, nine. I was pulled into a company called Atkins, which was looking at decarbonizing the built environment. And my first project was effectively, I guess, the early days of net zero greenhouse gas reduction. But maybe for just a bit of context, my background is in sustainability consulting. So I had 12 years as a sustainability consultant prior to jumping in-house. And one of my last projects as a consultant was advising CBRE investment management, then global investors on the structure and then launch of their sustainability vision, which we launched back in Q1 2021. And very fortunately got offered the opportunity to then jump in house as consultants don't often get to do to actually see that through to implementation. So a big part of my role has been implementing that sustainability vision over the past couple of years with the theme very much this year being about shifting from strategy to to action but quite a different journey but i think useful in terms of the detail of what we need to achieve in terms of uh, sustainability and the climate emergency to have that engineering background 
Yeah, definitely. Do you miss greenhouse gas accounting? It sounds quite techy. Back then, don't necessarily put an age on you. I imagine back then, how many years ago that was, it'd been quite a new area, sort of almost pioneering the way to account for greenhouse gases or what did it actually involve? It's very funny, actually, because I started doing greenhouse gas accounting, which yeah, it does sound very serious. Maybe we'd made good progress and try to align it with non-financial accounting back in the day. But the first piece of work I did was actually as part of a summer internship. And then I went back to university for the last two or three months. And I tried to do greenhouse gas accounting as part of my final year dissertation. And I remember my university lecturer laughing me out of the room saying, that's not real engineering. You can't do that. So it's changed a lot since then. But irrespective of that feedback, I still, when I finished university, went straight into that project for Atkins. So definitely it was the early days. I can't take credit for pioneering it, but because I think a lot of the great work had happened over the previous decade or two. And I always feel sorry for those environmental professionals who were really part of getting that shift in thinking. But a lot of their careers are coming to an end just as things are really starting to get exciting and we're starting to be in the room for a lot of these conversations. So, but definitely back in 2008, 2009, we were making great progress, but then the recession hit and sustainability really went to the bottom of the pile. So I think over the last couple of years, we've seen all the turbulence in the market. It's been really fantastic to see that sustainability has maintained its momentum, particularly in the EMEA region. And so it's been quite a relief because when COVID hit and all these other things, you really start to think, well, we're going to see a repeat of 2008 and sustainability is going to drop right to the bottom of the agenda. If anything, it's done the opposite, which has been fantastic. And we're seeing that in some of the DCIS research as well, some of the consumer research. I think everyone had that opportunity to stop and think, didn't they, when lockdown happened and you saw less air traffic and everyone just suddenly realised. I was in North London at the time and yeah, the air felt so much nicer. And I think it just gave everyone that moment of reflection, didn't it? So I guess it's a relief that things have gone in this direction. I'm interested in hearing a bit about how you turn a sustainability strategy into actually making it happen into the implementation. How was that for you? And has it been quite different developing the strategy, turning it into something tangible? And what kind of hurdles have you had to overcome that perhaps you might not have expected along the way? It's a really good question. I think the thing with strategies is they tend to expire quite quickly, typically. Since 2019, sustainability has really shifted year on year at pace. Regulations changing, market expectations. One minute it's greenhouse gas emissions, then it's moving to climate resilience. And you're getting all these different topics being added to the mix, things getting more granular. So it's very difficult to keep track. So the approach that we took is we almost split it into two. We had a vision and we called it a vision on purpose because it was meant to be something that was long-term, but not detailed. And so our vision was what we launched in Q1 2021. That had three focus areas or material topics, and that's climate, people, and influence. And that was very much about pulling the whole firm together behind the same idea, the same vision so that we were all heading in the same direction of things like net zero, things like building climate resilience and risk into our thinking, recognizing the fact that we've got probably somewhere over 10 million people that live in and use, work in these assets on a daily basis across our whole 150 billion or thereabouts AUM. And so that was the vision. And that's meant to be long-term. We're not meant to be updating that every couple of years. But below that, you then have the strategic piece, and we design that to be dynamic. So at its most simple, you could think of our strategy as a control panel with the ESG team sitting in that control tower. And we help to update that dashboard to adjust course as the metrics, best practice, and things evolve. And that allows us to tweak it. Things like taxonomy or SFDR comes along with some great new KPIs that are market acceptable and people start to use. We can bring that into our dashboard 
and adjust course for the whole direct investment strategy, for example, in a single table in its most simplistic form. And that allows us to stay dynamic. We peg it to external standards, which as you guys will know, are also constantly evolving. So to stand still in things like Gresp or Briam, you have to keep improving because the goalposts keep getting harder and harder. So by having it dynamic like that, we don't have to keep updating it. But the challenges probably that was one of the biggest ones, was making sure that it stayed relevant. And I think we've overcome that well. The other challenge is when you've got a large AUM like we have across multiple investment strategies and many different types of portfolios from commingled funds to separate accounts spanning different geographies, it's trying to find those systematic solutions where everyone is working together. And that's been one of the big challenges, but also it's the biggest opportunity. So it's worth exploring and trying to find ways through. Maybe just taking a step back, Rob, if you can, just thinking about, I think you referenced it there, the types of assets that you guys are looking at. I think most people would say CBRE, direct assets here in the UK, but can you just give us a flavor of all the things that you do and then perhaps some of the challenges those individual sleeves bring when it comes to sustainability more broadly? We've got about $150 billion AUM dollars. If you were to put that all in one place, I always like to say it's a small virtual city because it covers all the different sectors within those different investment strategies from offices, retail, logistics, industrial, et cetera, but also infrastructure. So we have an infrastructure mix. In terms of the investment strategies, we've got five direct being the biggest one, um, indirect where we, as you'll know, invest in underlying managers who also manage real estate, but also we've got listed securities, things like REITs and things like that, and also small credit business, but also the key one, which is, I guess, growing in popularity around the world is, and I think a lot of that's driven by sustainability is its infrastructure. And that has a really important role to play in that transition to net zero. So quite a wide range, all with different considerations. And it comes back to that earlier point on having that strategy piece where we call it the dashboard, that control tower piece. We have a unique table that allows us to set those KPIs for each of those five investment strategies that allows us to recognize the differences within each of those investment strategies because each one has a different way of engaging and influencing when it comes to ESG. I just think about the indirect piece. How easy is it to actually influence the managers that you're investing in? Is that a key attribute you look for or indeed a screening tool when it comes to the managers you want to put into your own fund to fund structures? It changes. So in direct, for all intents and purposes, with a landlord, albeit there's lots of different lease agreements with occupiers to consider. But in that case, we can make those changes. In some cases, we have to do a bit more influencing and collaboration and engagement with occupiers. But the direct business has our biggest opportunity to make change directly. But I guess also in a sense, that's challenging because then we are the ones that need to think through those asset level business plans. What's the right technology? When do we put it in? Looking at technology maturity, the business case, making sure that it makes sense, both in terms of the financials as well as for the planet. You don't want to shift environmental risk to social risk, and you don't want to create a different environmental burden on a different life cycle stage, for example. So all those considerations matter. On the indirect side, it's about influencing those underlying managers, and that's very much engagement. We do a lot of that through what we call the due diligence questionnaire, where we are able to reach out and engage with those underlying managers, understand where they are, but also start to set expectations of what we like to see in terms of data, in terms of targets and commitments. And that works very well. We have a lot of positive collaboration. I think a lot of those asset managers are in exactly the same position as us and all struggling to work out where to focus with all these different priorities that we have to engage with. The way it works very much, and it's the same with our own investors, 
and ourselves on the direct side is when a question comes in, we tend to go away and make sure we think about that and come back with an answer. And it's the same on the indirect business. If we signal that something is beginning to be of increasing importance to us and our investors, the underlying managers often will go away and think about that. But at the moment, I think the market's collaborating quite nicely, particularly in EMEA. On other investment strategies, again, it varies. Listed securities, you've got opportunities through things like proxy voting. On our infrastructure business, we're investing in operating companies that effectively own and operate that infrastructure. There's opportunities to get on the board. And so again, we have lots of ways that we can influence. And going back to that vision, that's why one of those three focus areas was influence. It's recognizing that a whole chunk of this 150 billion AUM is not directly managed, but we still need to bring them on the journey with us. And we need to use all those different levers to engage and positively influence. What are the challenges that you face? Perhaps we could look at a bit more direct. Are there sectors where it's easier to do this than others? What's your experience there? This is why having an in-house ESG team is an important thing because every asset is unique, every country is unique, and it's quite difficult. And I know many of us have tried to a great extent to find sort of one-size-fits-all solutions that you can roll out. But just like with the financials, every asset has its own business case. So you look at logistics sector in the direct business or industrial, huge opportunities for ESG initiatives like rooftop solar, rainwater harvesting, but probably maybe less of an issue on a square meter basis in terms of greenhouse gas footprint than older office in central London, for example, which has less opportunity maybe for rooftop solar. So logistics presents a huge opportunity for putting in place things like renewables, and we're very much looking to do that at scale. But equally, it has opportunities for green space, natural lighting, social value. So there's a lot you can do with a shed. It gets much harder when you get an office asset, because typically you might have a listed building in central London. It might be multi-occupancy. It may not have any roof space at all. If it does, it might be quite limited. But conversely, I guess, to logistics, the pressure to do stuff is almost greater in offices because you've got the pressure from the corporate tenants who've all set net zero strategies and have large employee bases that have high expectations for social value and well-being in the office. So the expectations to do things in office sector probably has some of the greatest drivers. And I believe we're starting to finally see from various sources that reflected in things like rental income, particularly across cities like London and Paris, where the office sector is prepared to pay more for offices that have that ESG premium because they are on that increasing pressure. I've seen that even firsthand from companies where I've worked previous to this, where we've set as a business quite ambitious net zero targets. One of the low-hanging fruits is when your lease comes up, you either move office to one that helps you achieve those, or you can start to use that as a negotiating tactic to then push your landlord to do more. And we see a lot of that. Residential has challenges on data, as I'm sure you're all aware that it's much harder to get that ESG data from the residential sector. And retail has gone through all sorts of challenges, but equally has lots of opportunities. In my personal view, not a conversation or a topic we've really started to pursue, but I've always been excited about the opportunity for circular economy thinking in the retail space. I think similar to the change that we saw offices go through, where it went from rows of desks where people came and sat at their desk, plugged in and worked, to becoming much more of an experience to almost draw you into the office for collaboration days. Um, hopefully, and again, trying to maintain the old space where possible, but use it differently. Not always the case, but that's in some ways where the office sector could go. With retail, it's again, it's moving away from just rows of clothes and products to much more of an experience, but also thinking about how that same space can be used differently, how you can build in things like repair spaces for clothes, take back schemes, 
but again, more of an experience. So you come in, you get fitted, and then you can go off and maybe order online still, but you build a profile with that. So it's about changing spaces, but there's so many opportunities. I personally believe we're starting to live through a sustainable industrial revolution where we're reinventing everything of the past, but also trying to reimagine all these new business models and technologies simultaneously. And I think built environment has a huge opportunity to play in that because we've housed the global economy. We don't always think of it that way. We have all these assets spanning all these sectors and infrastructure, but within that is the global economy, people living, working, businesses, small, large, et cetera. So I think we've got a really big opportunity, but it's not an easy fix. It's not an easy one to find all those opportunities. And I think the toughest thing is always the complexity of the built environment, all those different stakeholders. And you've got behind us, you've got institutional investors for this particular case, pension trustees behind those, you've got individuals who work for companies, public or private sector. And then you've got at the asset level, the investment manager, you've got the facilities managers, you've got the occupiers, sometimes multi, then you've got the customers sometimes that might use the shops. It's so complex. And I think unsticking that complexity to take advantage of these solutions at scale is one of the biggest challenges. I've got a quick question just on the office sector. Use that as an example. Given the pressure on, I suppose, working from home, the new way we tend to work and the desire for corporates to base themselves in grade A offices that have got high levels of ESG characteristics. When it comes to these older buildings, there's almost like a polarization now between really great offices and not so great offices. Do you think that for those not so great ones, they will have to be repurposed or knocked down? And the reason I'm mentioning it is almost starting from scratch environmentally isn't necessarily the best thing to do. But are you seeing that when you're looking at the assets that you own and thinking, well, we've got a couple of options here. Maybe it is easier to start from scratch, but environmentally, it might not be the best option. Or has technology moved on that actually knocking it down start from scratch isn't as bad as repurposing the concrete, for example, or recycling the concrete? In the ideal world, whenever you have a decision like that to make, you do a life cycle assessment, whole life carbon thinking, because I think things are getting better when you have a demolition. Materials are starting to be upcycled if it's done in a responsible way. But going forwards in the future, as we move to more modular design, so buildings can be deconstructed in a way that those materials can be reused. Having that provenance, that traceability of materials so that when you do take it apart, you know the structural integrity of the steel or whatever it might be, so it can be reused and the structural engineers can do their assessments meaningfully. We've seen examples of that in London already, where we've seen buildings that have been taken down, deconstructed, or I think demolished always sounds like the wrong word to use, and they've reused those steel structures because they've had that historical data about the structural integrity of them. I think we're moving into a world where that will happen more often. So we're moving into modular design, that circular economy thinking, which will definitely facilitate that. But equally, for a building to be retrofitted and refurbished, for things to be added and removed much more easily. In a perfect world, again, we would shift to more of a lease model, as we're seeing in many sectors where all the fit out in the building is leased from the carpet tiles to the suspended aluminium to the ceilings. Because when you then get to the point where that building's reached the end of its life or you get tenant change, those service providers can just come in and take that stuff out and then reuse it elsewhere. So you get this almost traffic cone type principle where they're getting steady and predictable income all the time from leasing those assets to a building. And then they get that valuable resource back. If it's a suspended aluminium ceiling, aluminium has appreciated in value um, 
and that means that they maintain ownership of those resources they maintain that extended producer responsibility so i think shifting to that in the future we'll see that the end of life of buildings being much less of an issue but you're absolutely right in the short term it is a problem and i think a life cycle assessment is the only way to look at it typically now if you're going to demolish a building to develop a brand new one you're taking the payback period on all the benefits you get from that new building you could be extending it up to 20 to i think in some cases i've seen 80 years before you start to see a benefit again and it's the same with things like rooftop solar if you're going to put in rooftop solar it requires structural work you're extending that payback period in embodied carbon terms because you're then having to do loads of work which includes steel construction activity potentially additional concrete and what might have been a 5 to 10 year I'm not sure I'm just using numbers for indicative purposes and you might be taking that to a 20 year payback period so all these things do matter and it's the only way to really do it meaningfully because every developer is going to approach things differently is to do a life cycle assessment and I think that expectation is increasing we're seeing things the EU taxonomy for example starting to hint that whole life carbon data is going to be important we're seeing the UK market in things like the industrial strategy starting to hint that environmental product declarations for construction materials might become mandatory in the near future so i think we're there's even rumblings of disincentivizing demolition for that very reason so i think it's an important topic i think it's only going to be answered case by case but at the moment i'd say most cases demolition creates a much longer payback period so a long answer but hopefully useful something i've done quite a lot of thinking about <laughs> it sounds like yeah just taking a step back so for ESG sustainability all these things can be interchangeable with the E side of direct assets and again we'll focus on direct assets that's okay and the environmental side of things is perhaps slightly more intuitive very simplistically you whack some solar panels on that type of stuff how does the S side of things fit into direct because social is I don't want to say vague, but it can encompass lots of different things and can probably mean lots of different things to the individual sleeve. So for build to rent, for example, the social bit might be really big common areas or a gym. But in terms of offices and industrials and logistics, these things, how does the S fit into that? And can you give some examples of how it looks? It's a hot topic at the moment because I think the reality is, is it's not being considered as well as it should, given the importance of it, particularly in offices where users of offices really do put a lot of value on having those things taken seriously i think on the e i wouldn't say it's easy because historically our sector's not set up in a way that that data is readily available even though it's almost surprising that it isn't because these are the real the mass the energy that flows through a building and if it was any other sector like manufacturing or pharmaceutical plants they measure every corner of their processes for temperature ph flow rate the works and they know what's going on and any waste stream becomes a byproduct for some reason the built environment has evolved in a way that that stuff has predominantly been ignored and it's been only the financials we're shifting very much into non-financial reporting now measuring those real flows kilowatt hours water waste etc so e is definitely moving quickly the challenge with s is that you can't really measure it like you can with the e you can't stick a smart meter in a building to measure happiness you can't really compare people like for like and i think that's an important point because one of the big risks for social value is trying to put everyone in the same bucket and we went through generations where that happened and we know that didn't work we've got to treat people as individuals recognizing everything from temperature is interpreted differently individual to individual to things like co2 levels in an office or what people's expectations are of plants natural light all these things are subjective so it makes social value very difficult to measure in a sort of systematic way the evidence behind 
that challenge can be seen in the fact that the European Commission still hasn't come out with its social taxonomy yet, yet it has done an environmental taxonomy. So personal view of this, and this is again something I'm having to think through with my peers as to how can we do this, because we can't just do nothing. We can't just wait for the European Commission to come up with something. We are doing things organically, obviously, like call asset managers. There's a lot of great progress happening at each asset, but we want to be able to measure it because what gets measured gets managed. And also it means we can start doing things systematically. So my personal view on social value is we have to shift to thinking about it in more action terms rather than outcomes. We can measure the rollout of things, CO2 monitors and offices. We can measure the rollout of improving natural light. We can measure engagement with local communities where we are doing a development. And those are the things which we can say, we're going to put that in place and we can measure it. What gets harder is to measure the outcome, but that can be done anecdotally. It doesn't mean we don't measure it, but it just needs to come with that caveat of if you put in place effective well-being things in an office, everyone is going to be affected by those things positively, hopefully in the round, but to different levels. So it's a challenge, but it's one which the industry, I think, is actively engaging on and looking for ways around. I don't think it's stopping progress, but it would be very nice to understand where we are making progress and how well it's working and where we can focus and prioritize. That's the next step. And what about the G? How are things in terms of governance? We're just picking them all off in turn here. The G often gets forgotten, but I think there's been, particularly in UK, EU, I think there's been a lot of progress on the G in terms of market expectations. It's a difficult one. I tend to see the G in two areas. I see it as, have we got appropriate governance measures in place to manage and govern our sustainability program globally? That's one element of how I see it. But then you've got the other G, which is the policies, looking at things like board diversities, both of formal executive, but also of the committees that we structure. I think Progress has been made in the EU and the UK, both driven by regulation, by standards, but actually I think the market has actually really wanted it. And there's been a lot of great community-driven initiatives that have also driven that. On the governance piece, I always think it's important that people consider the G when it comes to how their programs are set up. And that's been a big focus of what we've been doing here over the last year. It's great to say we have a sustainability program, but how is it actually governed how do we make sure we've got accountability built in? How do we make sure we've got escalation, representation, integration happening? And so we put in place a global sustainability council, which is made up heavily of ex-co members. And we've also put in place a sustainability committee that mirrors each of our five investment strategies and an additional one for our corporate operations. So we've also used the G to drive, I guess, what other parts of the business would probably call things business management systems and accountability. I think that's also an important part of the G is making sure that we formalize all the great work that has gone in over the last 30 years to get us to where we are today so that it's locked in and starts to really become business as usual. Almost the same journey that risk and health and safety went on setting a decade or so back where that is just now part of the fabric of how a business operates. Sustainability needs to go on that same journey. So I think that's equally as important as the wider governance pieces. Bringing it back to the environment, I was going to ask you about offsetting in the pensions community. I'm seeing loads of impassioned LinkedIn posts supporting offsetting and condemning offsetting as cheating. And I'm sure the answer is a lot more nuanced than either of those polarized views. You could just give us some thoughts on offsetting and when it can work well and perhaps when it doesn't. I really like the pension community because it seems to be the investor community that cares the most and probably because at the end of the value chain, you have those end consumers. So the just transition has always been a big focus of the pension community. 
And I think it's important to to consider all aspects. Offsetting is a tough subject. The legacy offset market, I think, has landed us in the place where we are now, where trust has been lost. But the reality is, in a net zero transition, the only way you can get the net in net zero is through carbon removal. Carbon removal is another word for offsetting, effectively. The important distinction is that the carbon removal piece should never be done as an alternative to mitigation. So it doesn't mean that you look at carbon removal because you've decided it's a quick win and you're going to just throw some money at it because that's just not what it's about. The carbon removal is about those residual emissions, the too hard to abate emissions at the very end of your net zero journey. So you've done everything you physically can within your value chain, particularly your direct operations, to get down to as close to zero emissions as possible in line with that Paris trajectory. And you're left with, I think for our sector, we're probably looking at somewhere between maybe 5 to 10% of your total greenhouse gas footprint based on your baseline, which can then be counted as too hard to abate and you're allowed to then mop up with carbon removal. And that has to be taking greenhouse gas emissions out of the atmosphere. So emissions that are already in the atmosphere, taking them out. Two ways to do that, it's either technology-based, things like direct air carbon capture, or it's nature-based afforestation, peatland restoration, et cetera. And the technology piece is quite exciting because we could be using rooftops in cities to farm carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and make crazy small businesses poppy up, making everything from vodka to ink and things out of greenhouse gas emissions captured from the atmosphere. But that does come with a life cycle cost because you're creating new technologies, new materials, et cetera. And equally, it's probably more expensive. So a lot of businesses are going to look down that more nature-based solution of carbon removal. And that, I think, is the really exciting piece because that's a win-win. If you really focus on your journey of greenhouse gas mitigation and you really are left with that small residual piece at the end, which you need to remove, the nature-based solution is really exciting. So if it's done in the right way, you are restoring nature, you're restoring biodiversity, you're creating natural habitat for communities, and you are sequestering carbon at the same time. The controversial piece, in my view, because I do think this has to happen, the net and net zero has to come from that, but it has to be done right, is we want to make sure that the private sector, the corporate world, doesn't start to own up swathes of the countryside and start locking it off to communities, planting the wrong things in the wrong place. So it has to be done right. And that's why, despite the fact this is about the end of the net zero journey, the conversation for how we do that responsibly starts now not just because we need to have that debate now and make sure we're all doing it in the right way, but also because trees don't grow overnight. So whilst you're trying to target your sequestration for the end of it, you have to start looking at these solutions because it takes many years to get them up to maturity and sequestering carbon. But this is a hot topic. It's one of the big debates, but in my view, it can be a win-win-win if we do it in the right way. And I think that requires collaboration. And I've already seen some great examples in the UK Although I would say the UK market is leading the way in this nature-based solutions. And going back to that point on infrastructure from earlier, the infrastructure sector has a opportunity to lead on this because you're effectively valuing nature and turning it into, I guess, the closest fit would be a real asset in the infrastructure world. And we'll probably start to see things like trees being insured, which is a complete shift in our economy from where we've been historically, where if a forest burns down, typically the economy profits from that because you have to make more equipment to put it out. You have to pay the services companies that would put the fire out. So it's quite an incredible shift in our thinking and uh, one I'm supportive of, but only if we do it in the right way. 
And just thinking about that, being able to effectively offset, you need to know what your position is now. And this goes to the point of data collection. And one of the key things for DC schemes over the last year and will be going forward is TCFD reporting, which includes both sort of carbon emissions information, but also climate scenario analysis. And I kind of touched on some of the challenges with getting the data, given the stakeholders and the structure of tenants, landlords, all that type of stuff. From a climate scenario analysis perspective, how do you think about that when looking again more at the UK direct side of things? Because I know personally from within Aberdeen, it's been a challenge, but we know the direction of travel is this stuff needs to be done. And just wondered how you guys think about it. It's a good question because a lot of pressure does come from the pension community driven by things exactly like this, a shift in the UK Pensions Act back in 2021 that's landed the market in this situation. The way I think about the data and the responses we need to give to investors is almost in three buckets. So either it's we are directly regulated or legally obliged in some way as CBRE investment management to do something. SFDR is a good example of that. We have a fund, for example, that will have to do an SFDR periodic response, and that's something we just have to do. But actually, there's a huge amount of indirect regulation where our investors, whether it be a pension trustee through the expectations on climate risk, or even a fund of fund investor who themselves are regulated to do an SFDR periodic response, pass that expectation on to us. And for us, that is as good as regulation because we have to do it. Our investor needs that data, that information. And I think that TCFD reporting, that climate scenario analysis falls firmly into that second bucket. But there's actually a third growing bucket, which is the voluntary piece, where what we're seeing is investors just picking up these KPIs, the SFDR, principal adverse impacts, the exposure to percentage exposure to fossil fuels, for example, for real estate, and just going, do you know what? These are great KPIs. These are things which the whole market's starting to use. We can now start to compare. And we're seeing voluntary requests for that in terms of our performance data. But I think your question firmly sits in that second bucket. And we anticipate these things. A big part of the job of the sustainability team is to look at where the market is heading to make sure we're plugged in to the consultations before these things even launch. And that we, going back to the earlier point on that strategy, when we recognize there's going to be a change to the direct business, we revisit that control panel, that dashboard for direct. And we say, we are going to have requests for climate risk data coming down the line. We need to prepare for this. And this is why it's going to happen. And the way we respond to that is that we would roll out and we have rolled out climate risk tools. So both CREM for transition risk and Moody's for physical risk. And we've covered now 100% of our indirect business on the physical risk, for example, and pretty much 100% of our direct business. But that's only step one. That's the almost the hotspot mapping, the scenario analysis. It allows us to work out where we need to then lift the hood, so to speak, to look in a bit more detail. That very much is the data that we've been asked for in the first instance, but the journey continues as it will for the pension trustees. The next step is that expert opinion. I like to use the analogy of an underwriter in the insurance business. You've had a tool that's done some screening based on a location, um, a postcode. You then get your high risk ones, but you need a human element which says, do we know something at the asset level or in the immediate vicinity, which means we can downgrade this risk, or are we still unsure and we need to now escalate this to either a site visit or a more detailed study? And that's the point the market's at at the moment. And I think we'll start to see question one, share that initial screening data, which is, I think, where most of that market is. But very much that's going to move forwards to, well, what did you do with that? How did you prioritize? And where you still had things which were high or critical in terms of risk for things like physical climate, 
what did you do in your mitigation planning? Can you then update us on progress? And that's where we're heading. I think it's really positive that we're seeing this leadership in the UK. I really do. And I've read the report that you guys had produced. And I completely agree that the staged approach that we've seen in terms of that TCFD implementation, starting with, I think the threshold was 5 billion moving to one, that's been really good because it's created a honeymoon period where the market's able to find its feet, collaborate and start to really learn in a safe space. And I think that in itself has actually demonstrated the value of understanding these risks. Now the market is almost self-perpetuating. And I really do think that irrespective of what views are globally, this is a risk. Whatever you do or don't believe, climate is getting more volatile. Energy prices are getting more volatile. So these are risks which need to be understood and managed. And TCFD has very much driven that when it comes to that, particularly the physical climate risk. And a big part of our fiduciary duty is to understand these things and help manage the transition. So I think it's been a positive thing. And we've had a lot of engagement off the back of it. But one of the exciting topics that always comes up in the pension sector is that just transition piece that I mentioned earlier, which is we've got to be careful not to move too quickly, because particularly when you come back to life cycle thinking, you can solve one thing, but create a problem somewhere else. And a good example is you decarbonize the grid in the UK, but you create a jobs crisis where you haven't done the training and the transition of those roles into other sectors, future energy sectors in a responsible way. So Equally, the big challenge of pensions is a lot of fossil fuels are still quite locked up in pension schemes. So again, it's how do you unpick these things in a responsible way, in the right way. And that's where a lot of the challenges come from, in my view, in the sustainability space is collaborating with the market to find out how you can do this. But it's been a successful outcome, the TCFD reporting in the pension space. Robbie, what I've been asking, we've had a few sustainability experts on this series, and I tend to ask everyone, you're all immersed in this world and obviously you're very passionate about it. Taking a step back and looking at all the net zero pledges and all the great work that's been done, how optimistic are you feeling right now about our ability to get there and meet those goals that we've set ourselves that are quite ambitious? Where do you think we are on that journey? I have to be optimistic because someone has to be. So I am, but I am genuinely optimistic. I think if we went back to 2015, 16, I think I was probably starting to despair a little bit. 2019 saw a real change in the European market, particularly in the UK, the Netherlands, France, to some extent, you really start to see the conversation start to enter the boardroom, as I like to say. And since then, I've felt very positive about it. I genuinely cannot grow the team fast enough, cannot take advantage of the opportunities that are available fast enough. So I am really optimistic. There are huge challenges in Europe, including the UK. I'm very optimistic. We are on the right path. Things are moving at pace. It is good. We're not there yet. We've got a lot of work to do, but it's moving at pace. The challenge is is that the UK, EU aren't the ones that need to change. And so we need to make sure all the great work we're doing here, we are collaborating effectively with our global value chains through to North America, India, China, and making sure we're bringing them with us on the journey. One of the things which I think was really encouraging, which was in the news only a couple of days ago is 2023 is the tipping point, according to the data, where renewable energy becomes bigger than 50% of the global energy mix. And that's great. On the surface of it, that's a good mix. But the caveat, obviously, being is that the global energy pie has got bigger and bigger, which technically still means in absolute terms, fossil fuels has still grown year on year. But the fact that we're getting to the point where we've reached that tipping point means that the business case for renewables is really starting to bed in. 
and we're starting to shift. It's becoming an opportunity now, as opposed to where it was five to 10 years ago, where it was seen as almost a bit of a hassle to some extent. It wasn't quite proven. People were still on the fence. Solar has come down in price so much. The returns, the the benefits are really clear. So I'm I'm very optimistic. I think we're heading in the right direction. But it's about the biggest challenge we've got in the UK in particular is making sure we outsource that thinking, that best practice, and really persuade and influence others to join us because we need the whole world to do this, not just the UK. Well, I think that's a great point to end on. Robbie, thank you so much. It's been so great to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. And I'm definitely going to be thinking about that point you made earlier about the are we entering a new industrial revolution thing? But obviously, in an environmental way. It was really great to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks so much. Thank you very much for having me. You've been listening to Changing World New Opportunities, brought to you by the DC Investment Forum. Head over to dcif.co.uk, where you can read all the research the DCIF publishes, follow the DCIF on Twitter and LinkedIn, and subscribe to this show on your favourite podcasting platform. Thanks, and we'll see you next time on Changing World, New Opportunities.